about Oldham Lane is, first off, that truth is preached and taught. That's a big thing. That's something we wanted. That's something we wanted for our family. That's the reason why we came here. So that's that. I love um, how close all the people are here and how everyone's friends. What I love about Oldham Lane is that the Word guides us. I love the fact that the Bible is first and foremost here at this congregation. Uh, the, the relationships that we've had here, uh, couple friendships and um, other women friendships, just the bonds that we've made with people, it's just been, been wonderful. So. We love Oldham Lane for the community that it has brought to our family. Um, you know, from the, from the first day that we came, we felt like we were a part of the Oldham Lane family. Um, I like um, the people at Oldham Lane and how involved they are with everybody's lives. Pretty much everybody knows everybody, and that's what I love about it. I love the, the thing I love most about the Oldham Lane is just the fact is I love it staying on scriptural base and really talking the truth. And the messages are great, and the truth, I mean, I'm just, I love it. Well, what I find so great about Oldham Lane is the people. Uh, and I think particularly of the leadership, the, the elders and the deacons. Uh, these are people who really have your spiritual best interest at heart. Um, the traditional Bible teachings that are provided here at Oldham Lane, both to the adults and to our children, is something that really drew us to Oldham Lane. And it's just, um, my love for it has just increased over time. How everybody loves each other. The greatest thing that I think is that uh, we get to come and, and fellowship together and carry each other's burdens. Um, I would say how um, Bible-based it is, that's very important to us. And so what I love about Oldham Lane is that it's just a very loving and teaching church. I think I've learned so much about how to be a Christian, a friend, a mom, a Bible teacher. Um, someone who's hospitable, and so I, I can just attribute so much of my faith to those that are in this church. So. Thank you so much for being here this first Sunday of the new year. Why do I love Oldham Lane? Because of you. Plain and simple, because of you. You guys make this what it is. Thank you so much for the love that you've shown to me over the last 13 years, and I hope that I've reciprocated that back to you. Those aren't the only people who love Oldham Lane, by the way. Those are just the ones that we had enough time to interview. Thank you so much, Blake and Luke, for putting the video together. Uh, Luke put it together and came to me and he said, so I, I've got it at five minutes. I said, that's a little long. I was hoping like two, two to three. So we had to cut some things, but, you know, I appreciate so much uh, all the wonderful comments that we hear about Oldham Lane. And thank you, Brooke. Brooke Stevens with this awesome logo that we're going to use throughout the year. She did a great job with that. And thank you for being here this morning as we talk about and springboard into the new year about being all in, being bought in to what we're trying to accomplish here, or more importantly, what God is trying to do here at Oldham Lane. In October 1997, I was the 24-year-old head boys basketball coach for the Cord Charlotte Indians. And I was young, I was dumb, probably thought I knew more than I did, the first game was upon us, and I hadn't slept much the night before, didn't eat much that whole day. To be honest with you, I was just ready to get it over with. I was ready to start, 
and get that first game out of the way and hopefully begin a long career in a winning direction. And so that first night, we had three games. Uh, every time we played, there were three games. There was either, either a junior high girls or boys game, then a senior high girls game, and then a high school boys game. This particular night, it was junior high boys, and since I was also the junior high boys coach, I got to get my feet wet and get some of the nerves out of the way with that first game. And so the gym was packed with hundreds of people that were trying to figure out if this new guy really knew what he was doing. And I answered those questions definitively and clearly by my team going out and scoring two points in the first half. Two points, that's it. That's all they scored. Now, what do you say to a team that scores two points in a half? I was afraid to say anything. I had just given the most inspiring pregame speech that I could think of. I had rehearsed it. It was Newt Rockne-esque, and it went out and produced two points. I was afraid if I said anything else, we might not score the rest of the year. But we went out, we scored more than two points the second half, but the other team scored way more than two points, and so we lost pretty badly. I learned something that night. I learned that you'd better adapt and adjust quickly. I also learned that we got work to do. You know, a successful coach is composed of several different types of attributes. They're a master motivator, a brilliant strategist, you know, somebody who is a hard worker. But in order for any of that to work, a coach has to have buy-in. He has to have buy-in from his team. The team has to understand what the coach is trying to do, how he's trying to do it, and what it's going to take to accomplish it, the price that has to be paid in order to get there. That's what buy-in is, and that's what every coach is seeking from his team. And by the way, that's what every preacher is seeking from the church that he ministers to. You know, after that first game, I went back to the drawing board. I did some with X's and O's, but mainly what I focused on is getting our team to understand what it means to be a family. And so I had the kids over at the house quite a bit. We did team building activities. We were together a lot because I felt like the closer we were as a team, the more successful we were going to be. And we stressed what family looks like. You know, family picks one another up. Family encourages one another. Family weeps with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, right? And church is the same way. We are a team. We are a collection of individuals united in a common goal. And so we have to understand what family is all about. If we're going to build a winning culture here, then I need buy-in from every single one of you. It starts with me, of course. But when you have buy-in, when the team understands what it takes and what it takes to get there, the price that has to be paid, it's a beautiful thing. It shows up on the court. And certainly, as Christians, it shows up in our daily lives. The decisions you make, the actions you take, how much you dedicate... All of that is dependent on buy-in. So why am I focusing all this, on all this? Well, it's very simple. I want to win. I want to win more than anybody. I want to win more than anything. And heaven is won or lost right here, right now. Look with me at Numbers chapter 32. Beginning of verse 1, this is what it says. Now the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had a very large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, 
Heshbon, Ileoleh, Sebam, Nebo, and beyond, the land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as our property. Do not take us across the Jordan. And we talked about this a couple of months ago, and even then when we were preaching on it, I thought this would make a, a, a good sermon when we talk about being all in. Because the tribes of Reuben and Gad were not all in. Do you see what's happening here? They wanted to plop down on the other side of the Jordan. And by doing so, they wouldn't be going and fighting with the rest of their brothers. And so this posed a problem, right? Moses wasn't happy with their decision and their request. They stopped short of their destiny. And you know, Israel represents us in many ways. They're a precursor, they're an archetype, they're a shadow of the church. We were delivered from bondage. We have been redeemed. We have been fitted for heaven and sustained by God. And yet many of his children never crossed the Jordan. Instead, they settle for less than what God has in store for them. And here I am standing in front of you, imploring you to keep moving forward and not to stop short of your destiny. Some of you here this morning may still be in Egypt, meaning that you have never left the bondage of sin. And if that describes you, I am so glad you're here. I am thankful that you have chosen to be with us. And I pray that you'll keep coming and keep listening and keep wanting to study because Egypt is no place to be. You need to get out of that bondage and out of that, that, that slavery. However, there are also many of you that perhaps have left Egypt a long time ago, but you never crossed over the Jordan. You've been delivered, but you've never reached your destination. Of course, we know that we won't reach that destination uh, just in one day, right? It's a, it's a constant moving toward a direction. But many people have stopped. They've decided that they're going to plop right down here in the pew, and that's good enough. But it's not. I firmly believe that this is where you need to be and that we can help you move. Just don't settle. Don't settle for here and now. This is what's written in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 23. It says, He brought us out of there in order to bring us in to give us the land which He had sworn to our fathers. God brought His people out of Egypt to bring them towards the promised land. And, he, and God brought you out of a land of sin and darkness to bring you to a land of promise and hope. But there's many Christians who, who, haven't, who haven't been brought in. They've been brought out, but they haven't been brought in. Too many have found contentment on this side of the Jordan. They have accepted a settlement that is far less than their inheritance. The tribes of Reuben and Gad decided that the land east of the Jordan would be a great place to settle because they had a large number of livestock and that would be a good place to graze them. They surveyed the land and they thought, well, this is fine enough for us. And perhaps they rationalized it by saying something like, you know, we're not going to be greedy. You guys can have all that land. We'll, we'll just go ahead and choose to stay here. We'll just plop down right here. You can have Canaan. Don't worry about us. Y'all go ahead. And maybe you've done the same thing. Maybe you've rationalized your decision to stop moving. Say something like, well, you should have seen me 20 years ago. I'm way further along now than I've ever been. You should have known me back then. I'm not that person anymore. But is that good enough? And the, re and, and the, and the answer is no. And the reason why is because you were made for more. 
The tribes of Reuben and Gad had settled, and it disturbed Moses. Notice verses 6 and following. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben, Should your brothers go to war while you remain here? And why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eskol and saw the land, they discouraged the sons of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger burned on that day, and he swore, saying, None of the men who came up from Egypt, from twenty years old and upward, shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. For they did not follow me fully, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire congregation of, of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord came to an end. Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place, born of sinful men, to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once more leave them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people. Moses says, you're telling me that you're going to plop down right here while the rest of your brothers go off and fight? I mean, the only reason this land is available for you to sit is because of your brothers and the fighting that they did. You can't stop now. You're going to discourage the rest of them. And Moses also believed, and we'll talk about this in a minute, he also believed that they would incur the wrath of God because of what happened in the past. Here's why you can't settle. Because God expects you to fight. To say I'm content, to say good enough, is to exempt yourself from the battle. This is bowl season in college football. And if you watch college football, especially this time of year, you hear a lot of talk about players opting out. Opting out of the bowl game because they're preparing for the NFL draft or whatever. You can't opt out here. That's not an option. We can't be opting out. We can't settle. There is a battle at hand. And when we opt out, we make the battle heavier and hotter for those who did choose to fight. Moses' concern was that if these two tribes opted out, that it would increase the pressure for those who are on the front lines. You know, back when the West was settled, the major form of transportation was the stagecoach. And riding on stagecoaches, there were three different types of ticket holders. You had first-class ticket holders, you had second-class ticket holders, and you had third-class ticket holders. Now, if you were a first-class ticket holder, it meant that you could rest comfortably throughout the entire trip. You didn't have to get up. You could just sit there. You could, you could sleep, do whatever, but you never had to get up. If a wheel came off the axle, if a wheel broke, if a wagon got stuck in the mud, if it had trouble going uphill, needed somebody to push, not you. First-class ticket holders, they could sit there comfortably and relax, never having to get up. If you were a second-class ticket holder and trouble came, you could sit for a while, but if they needed you, you had to get up and help. So you could sit there, and if those who had been employed to help couldn't get the job done, then you would have to roll up your sleeves and dig in. If you were a third-class ticket holder, it was just assumed that you had to help. I mean, that was part of your responsibility as a third-class ticket holder. So if a wheel came off, if it broke, if it got stuck in the mud, if the wagon needed pushing, you immediately had to get up. You were the one that had to get up and help whatever the need was. You didn't get to rest comfortably. And folks in the church, 
Not this one, of course. But in many of our churches, there are a lot of first-class ticket holders. There are a lot of people who sit in the pew and just watch as everybody else does work. In some churches, there are second-class ticket holders. There are people who sit back and wait to see if somebody else is going to do the job. If it's not getting done, they may get up and help. But the church, this church, and every church should be full of third-class ticket holders. Every single one of you are third-class ticket holders. Anytime there's a job to be done, you get up, you roll up your sleeves, and you dig in. In fact, you even look for opportunities. That's what we are to be about. We are all third-class ticket holders in that we're all constantly scanning the landscape, not getting too comfortable, ready to dig in and help whenever necessary because we are called to be servants. We are called to get in, dig in, and work. For the tribes of Reuben and Gad to settle east of the Jordan meant that their brothers would go off and fight without them. And Moses was concerned that their attitude and their actions could be contagious. Verse 7 again, And why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given? them. You want to know how to stop growing as a Christian? Just hang around people who are stagnant. It's a guarantee. You want to stop growing as a Christian? Just hang around people who are complacent, people who have stopped growing themselves. Moses knew that if the other tribes saw the actions of Reuben and Gad, they might themselves choose to plop down right there as well. They could be influenced. In fact, you can le uh, read a little further in Numbers chapter 32 and see that the half-tribe of Manasseh did just that. They decided to sit as well. Reuben and Gad's attitude affected and infected those around them. But here's another reason why Moses was upset. Because Reuben and Gad apparently hadn't learned their lesson. 38 years prior, a reconnaissance mission was done to the land of Ai to see if it was a land truly flowing with milk and honey. And these spies come back and they give a false report because they're scared. All of the ites live there, right? These big, strong people. It was certainly a land that was flowing with milk and honey, but it had some scary people and some fortified cities. And so these spies came back and gave a false report, and they incurred the wrath of God. And Moses was afraid that the same would happen because of the actions of Reuben and Gad. Because you're choosing to stay put instead of striking out, Moses thinks that the result could be the same. He says, haven't you learned your lesson? But the tribes of Reuben and Gad, they try to rationalize. Notice verse 16 and following. Then they approached him and said, We will build sheepfolds for our livestock here, cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, hurrying ahead of the sons of Israel until we have brought them to their place while our little ones live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the sons of Israel has gained possession of his inheritance. But we will not have an inheritance with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan toward the east. Notice how they said, but our inheritance, that wasn't your inheritance, but they made it out to be theirs, right? Reuben and Gad weren't idle. They were busy. They were willing to do some things. They served others. They even said, we'll go and do some fighting. We're just going to come back and we're going to settle here, east of the Jordan. So they were willing to serve the Lord in some capacity. But you know, service is just fleshly. If your heart is not all in for God, you can't override rebellion with good works. Reuben and Gad were not bystanders, but they had compromised and settled for less than their inheritance. And it's so easy to do. You know, 
when Libby and I first got married and we were poor, a lot of times we'd go out to eat, we would share a meal. It didn't happen, didn't happen that often, I don't guess, but every now and then we'd share a meal. And so the, the waiter would bring us our food and I would eat all that I wanted to eat and then I would give her what was left over. No, that's not actually what happened, but that would be bad, wouldn't it? Because when you share a meal, it's just understood that you're going to split it in half, you're going to eat your part, she's going to eat her part, and that's how it goes, right? But so many times as Christians, we do the opposite. We take all that we can for ourselves, we consume it all, and then we give God what's left over. And the problem is we consume a lot of things. There's a lot of things out there that we like to ingest. And so we do that, we consume all these things, mostly things that don't matter, and then we give God the crumbs, whatever is left over. Discipleship, though, looks totally different. Discipleship isn't about taking half and giving half. It isn't about feeding me first. Discipleship is about denying yourself. It's not about consumption, it's about depletion. Remember these words from Jesus in Luke chapter 14? Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 25 tells us that large crowds followed Jesus, and following is certainly a part of discipleship, but these weren't disciples, not yet. They were followers. And there's a difference. There's a difference in being around Jesus and being all in with Jesus. There's a difference in being a fan and a follower, a true follower. Remember what disciple means? It means to be just like your teacher. So there's a difference in just following your teacher and trying to imitate him in every way. Jesus tells these prospective disciples, he says, okay, you're following me understand what it's going to mean if you want to go all in he doesn't see the large crowds and say okay let's go baptize you all he doesn't see the large crowds and, and get excited he sees the large crowds and he gets skeptical right preachers in my day and age we see a large large crowd we get excited jesus got skeptical why are you following me do you not know what this entails and he said consider the cost you better consider the cost. If you're going to follow me, understand what you're going to have to give up. You may have to give up your possessions. You may have even to give up your family. Are you willing to do all that? Are you willing to give it all up in a relationship with me? Do you love me more? There's a cost. The offer's free, but there's a cost involved. My friend Brad Taylor has an airplane. And when I go speak out of town on a Wednesday night, he will often uh, offer to fly me. And I've taken advantage of that offer many, many times. So we go to Oklahoma City, we go to Dallas, wherever, and we fly in his old Baron. And I get home at like 9.30 instead of 1 in the morning. I don't have to spend money on my gas. But here's the deal with that offer. If I take him up on that offer, I put my life in his hands. If we crash, I die. Now, is it worth it? I think so. I mean, because he's a good pilot, I don't think he's going to crash. But if he does, my life is over. So the offer is free, and it's a great offer, because I get home earlier, I don't have to spend money on gas. But the offer comes at a cost, perhaps. Here's the question I have for you this morning. Which side of the Jordan are you on? Many of you are on the right side of the Red Sea, meaning you left Egypt, you were delivered from bondage, but are you moving toward your inheritance? Maybe you're on the right side of the Red Sea, but which side of the Jordan are you on? Because, folks, it's not enough just to be delivered. The Israelites were delivered from Egypt, but they weren't delivered just to sit. They weren't saved to sit. God had another destination for them. 
He wasn't just taking them out of Egypt. He was moving them somewhere else. And in the moving process, they had to have a wilderness experience. And many of you know what that's like because you're in one right now. Or you've been through the wilderness before. You know that this life isn't easy. But neither is a life of bondage and slavery. So you've left Egypt, but what side of the Jordan are you on? The Christian life can often seem like a wilderness experience. However, the key to reaching our destination is buying in. We've got to be all in on discipleship. The Israelites weren't, and I don't want to follow their lead. I want us to make sure that we are 100% certain what side of the Jordan we are on because I guess I'm playing the role of Moses this morning, and I'm standing before you and imploring you not to settle for less than your inheritance. Don't sit. Fight. Fight for what God has promised, because I believe too many Christians are settling. And it scares me to death. As your preacher, I'm all in, folks. I want you to know that. I'm all in on this thing. All in. And I want you to be as well. I'm tired of Christianity being a category. I'm tired of church just being a segment of your life. I want this to consume you. I want it to be all about you and your existence and that it affects everything else that you're involved in in life. Too many Christians leave Egypt and they look at baptism like it's fire insurance. Okay, well, I'm not going to hell. I'm good. But there's so much more to do and pursue. God has so much in store for you. Don't be satisfied with where you're at now. Ask, what more can I do? Yeah, we talked about it Wednesday night, but unfortunately, you know, the live streaming, which is a great blessing, can also be a curse because now it's created a culture of folks that, you know, if, I, if, if, if it's not convenient to go to church, I can just stay home now. That should never be your plan A, unless you need it. Unless there's extenuating circumstances, otherwise, be here, be engaged, be involved. Dig deeper into Bible study. Dig deeper daily into Bible study. You say, well, I don't do daily Bible study. Well, start now. Dig in. Don't settle for superficial Christianity. Work, serve, read your Bible, pray, fast. Do whatever you need to do to get more involved and to buy in completely. So that this is not just some little routine that you have, but this defines you. That this says everything about you. Don't wait another day as well. you got to understand the urgency here. You may not have tomorrow. How will you be remembered? Were you moving when you passed away? Were you climbing when you died? Go all in and understand what God is trying to do, how he's trying to do it, and the price that must be paid in order to accomplish it. Let me ask you this. Blake preached last week, and he did a phenomenal job. I got to be here for it, and I'm so glad because I hardly ever get to hear Blake or Luke or David when they fill in for me. But I got, to, I got to hear Blake last week. He did a great job. But two weeks ago, I preached. Anybody remember what I preached on? Everybody's head goes like this. Go ahead. You can, you can say it. Anybody remember what I preached on two weeks ago? Yeah. Well, it was, it was called Blue Christmas, and we talked about the loneliness of the holiday season. You guys are so sweet to me. Every week you come up to me and you say things like, thank you for the lesson. I you know, appreciate the hard work you do. And, and I need that. I feed off of that. That is fuel for me. So thank you. And understand, I never take that for granted. I have preacher friends that talk about, you know, every week they're dealing with a, with a sore head at their church or an elder that's a sore head. And, and they're really finding it difficult and they ask for advice and all that. And I'm like, I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I don't deal with that. 
I even have some of you tell me, you know, it's got to be tough being a preacher week in and week out. No, I mean, you guys are totally, completely supportive. Maybe not, you know, behind closed doors, but you are to me. And I thank you so much for that. But folks, hear me when I say this. I don't want to be a novelty. I don't want to just be somebody that you come and listen to because you find it interesting or you like the stories that I tell. I want you to take what we've talked about and use it. Apply it. When was the last time you took a lesson that I preached and used it in your daily life? Hopefully, pretty recently. But I'm also not naive enough to think that you guys even remember what I said from week to week. But I hope you do. Not only that you remember it, but you take it and you apply it to your life because that's what this is about. It's not about information. It's about transformation. I'm not satisfied with you just, you know, being happy with an interesting sermon. You stepped on my toes. Good. Now take it and use it. Apply it to your life. Be all in. We're all limping disciples. We all need hope. We all, we all need instruction. We all need encouragement. We all need help. We all need somebody to get in our kitchen maybe every now and then. But it's worthless if you don't use it. I'm all in on this preaching thing, and I, I want you to be all in on discipleship. I want you to be all in on growth. I want you to be all in on loving God and loving others, loving this church. You know, I, I'm not satisfied with big crowds or big contribution numbers. I think that's great. I think it's awesome, but I'm not satisfied with those things. I'm tired of discipleship just being presented as living a good moral life. You know what I want? I want reckless faith from you guys. I want, I want dangerous discipleship. I want radical growth. In, in short, I just want us to be everything Jesus calls us to be. If you do that, that's going to be pretty radical in this world. That's going to be pretty dangerous. I just want us to be like Jesus, and I hope that you want that as well. I hope that you want that with all of your being. But what scares me to death is that many of you are going to leave here this morning, and you're going to go out in your regular life, and you're going to be totally satisfied with being lukewarm. That's what scares me. That's what keeps me up at night, is that many of you, what I said this morning is going to go one ear out the other, and you're going to leave here, and you're going to be totally satisfied with just settling. Back in 1519... Spanish conquistador Hernando Cortez decided he was going to go get some of the loot that the Aztecs were hoarding. And so he took 500 soldiers, 100 sailors, and 11 ships to the coast of the Yucatan. And although he had a lot of people with him, he was still vastly outnumbered. And some of his own men were scared. And they decided to devise a plan to, to hop on their ships and, and escape. And when Cortez heard about the plan, he punished them severely. And then he called all of his men together and told them that they'd better be all in. That he needed complete buy-in for the mission. And then he did something completely insane. You know what he did? He sunk his ships. He sunk his own ships. He ordered that his own ships be sunk. And his own men were, are you crazy? Why are you doing this? He said, because if we're going to be successful, I can't have you looking back. I need you to be all in. So here's my message to you this morning. Sink your ship. And every single one of you knows exactly what I'm talking about. Because every single one of you has a ship. You have that one vessel that you retreat to, that one safety net, that one thing that keeps you tethered and keeps you from going all in, sink it.
There is no plan B. All right? If Jesus can't get us to heaven, we're not going to be there. There is no plan B. There's only a plan A. Sink your ship. Me, you, moving forward to the promised land. No looking back. No settling. All in. I'm all in. Are you? Jim's going to lead us in a song. If you're still stuck in Egypt, I hope you'll make a decision today to leave. And let us help you to leave the bondage of sin and slavery of sin. Maybe you've left Egypt, but you've gotten pretty comfortable where you're at. Let us help you with that as well. You need to keep moving forward. May we all die climbing, right? Or maybe... Maybe you're having a wilderness experience and you need the prayers and support of this church family and we'd certainly love to do that with you as well. What side of the Jordan are you on? There's no excuse for you to leave here this morning settled, lukewarm, sink your ship. Come as we stand and as we sing.